0: The following program is for adult audiences only. Stephen Lancaster's Ghost Story is proudly sponsored by the Shadow Initiative Paranormal Talk Podcast. What you are about to hear is a true case file from paranormal investigator Stephen Lancaster. Stepping on the grounds of Eidolon Fields is the closest any human being will ever get to hell and still have a heartbeat. That may sound a bit overdramatic, but a weekend on the property nearly took my life and the lives of my colleagues. We were chased out of the woods and into the fields by a pack of hyenas, unloaded clips of ammunition at something that was apparently impossible to hit fought dehydration in 120-degree weather, survived being attacked and knocked down stairs, and walked away with some of the best evidence ever documented in favor of the supernatural. The weekend of August 5, 2011 proved to be a monumental series of days that stretched both our physical and mental abilities. We traveled to Warsaw, North Carolina to spend three days on an 85-acre former slave plantation at the request of the new owner of the property. Mr. Scotts purchased the property only a few months prior to contacting us. His dream was to completely renovate the run-down and overgrown location and bring it back to the original form as it stood in 1840. Unfortunately, Mr. Scotts purchased more than an 85 acre property with three barely standing slave quarters and a rundown plantation house. Unfortunately, Mr. Scotts would never see his dream of renovating the property come to life. Mr. Scotts purchased Eidolon Fields, and it was not long before he realized exactly what that meant strange phenomena he started experiencing while on the property prompted him to contact my paranormal investigation team. Mr. Scotts was hearing phantom voices in the plantation house, witnessing bizarre lights across the old soybean fields, and on a few occasions believed he saw otherworldly figures both inside and outside the historic home. The discovery of human-like footprints and what appeared to be claw marks burned into the ceiling of the attic was enough to push Mr. Scotts into seeking outside assistance to hopefully help answer his questions about these experiences. I assembled a group of six from my paranormal team, Pitt, paranormal investigation team, and a German shepherd named Dozer. The team of six consisted of former military, law enforcement, a teacher, a nurse, a private investigator, and of course, myself, a published author. I assigned Alan Bess, Christina Parker, Spencer Holland, Kalia Golden, and Jeff Miller. Every individual on this case had a strong background in paranormal research, and frankly I needed the best I had ever worked with to even consider tackling something of this scale and nature. Upon arriving in Warsaw, I discovered the main plantation house was easy to find. The historic building stood proud on the edge of the property line. We arrived at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, August 11th. The owner had hidden the key to the plantation house for us to use for access to the building. The property was ours for the weekend, and I think it spoke volumes that he would not step foot on that property to at least get us started. The weekend ahead was going to be extremely challenging for all of us. The intense heat forced us to bring a crate full of bottled water. The elements were working against us, and in addition to that, the plantation house did not have running water or electricity. Knowing this ahead of time really helped us prepare for a weekend that required our equipment to have enough stored power to last at least three days. The team and I were roughing it for the weekend, so to speak. A case like this is a rarity when considering the preparation, environment and physical demands. With only about 5 hours of solid daylight remaining, I decided to organize the team for a reconnaissance mission to survey the entire property. We needed to determine the best placement for night vision cameras, our base camp and just to acquire general knowledge of the land. The team and I also needed to locate the three mentioned slave quarters. The entire group was present except the team's tech manager, Jeff Miller. He was in the middle of picking up and transporting our base of operations equipment trailer and all-terrain vehicles. The all-terrain vehicles, or ATVs, were to aid us when traveling over and through the rough terrain. I had no time to wait for his arrival. We quickly unloaded a few of the crates containing firearms, tracking equipment, and water. Backpacks were loaded with as much water as they could carry, firearms were checked, and tracking equipment was packed away in our vests. With the team ready to move, arms detail began. Pitt head investigator Alan Bess briefed the team on the arms detail for safety, awareness, and to emphasize the dangerous situations we could possibly encounter. His military background was essential to certain elements of this case. While Alan was briefing the team on a recognizance mission, I was prepping a Canon GL-2 film camera to begin documenting the weekend. This would prove to be a huge handicap for me, considering that one arm had a 12-gauge shotgun and the other had a $3,000 video camera. Not only was I required to be alert for whatever the environment could throw at us, I also needed to be attentive to what I was filming. Alan finished the briefing, and armed with pistols, shotguns, and various pieces of tracking equipment, we began our trek across the old, forgotten fields. Even at 5 in the afternoon, the summer sun beating down on us was extremely brutal. It took us about 20 minutes to reach the edge of the fields where the thick wooded area began. The woods were believed to be the location of the slave quarters. Little did I know then that we would discover a whole lot more than that. The five of us stood at the edge of the field completely drenched in sweat. I stared back across the field and could barely see the plantation house from the distance we had traveled. Before entering the woods, Alan gave brief and stern instruction on the mission. Alan would take point, which simply means to be at the head of the group. Per my suggestion and for documentation purposes, I requested to cover the rear of the group. That placed the three women on the team in the middle and protected by firearms from whatever awaited within those trees. Not long after we entered the woods, the first slave quarters were discovered. Near the slave quarters was a second structure which we determined to be an old tobacco house. Both structures were still well intact despite their age and lack of neglect. Various ropes tied into shapes most commonly used to represent voodoo hung from the doorways and window sills. This was not uncommon considering many of the former slaves practiced voodoo. The rope symbols were meant to warn and scare off potential physical and spiritual danger. The shape of the snake appeared to be the one most commonly used in this situation. After exploring and documenting the two buildings, we pressed deeper into the woods. The time was now 8 o'clock and daylight was slowly welcoming nightfall. This was a huge concern to me. We had yet to discover the remaining two slave quarters. Finding ourselves caught in the darkness of night surrounded by thick forest in an area unfamiliar to us was not exactly a pleasant thought. Against better judgment, we decided to continue on. Before doing so, we equipped ourselves with headlamps, flashlights, and glow sticks. All cameras documenting the mission were switched over to night vision. I activated and placed a glow stick on the ground where we were standing as a visual marker. We pressed on. About an hour later, we stumbled upon a skeleton of what appeared to be some kind of canine. The bones were nearly all present and still intact, which is a rare thing to find in the woods. Most of the time, random predators will rip a piece of carcass off and carry it away, but this was different. Not an ounce of flesh remained on the skeleton, which meant it had been in that spot and left alone for a very long time. The bones had no sign of an attack or damage from a man-made device. The skull of the animal was easily the most intriguing aspect. Four fangs, each about an inch and a half long, were the focal point of the jaw, with two fangs on top and two on the bottom. Even dead, this animal had a very menacing and intimidating appearance. We packed up the entire skeleton piece by piece and returned to searching the woods for the remaining slave quarters. As the team kept walking, whispers asking more about what we just found only added to the creepiness of the situation. I was curious too. I mean, I was the one carrying the bones of an animal no other creature would even eat. Granted, animals are perceptive and disease could have been the cause of death. That would have certainly been a logical conclusion to explore and possibly explain why nothing ate it. About 15 minutes later, we found a small pond nestled within a wall of trees. This seemed like a good place to stop and give the team a chance to rest and to allow Dozer some much-needed water. Although the sun was no longer above us, the humidity was just unbearable. I logged 98 degrees Fahrenheit at 10 o'clock on the ambient thermometer attached to my vest. As we stood close to the edge of the pond, watching Dozer splash around in the water and talking softly among one another, pit case manager Kalia quickly silenced all of us after hearing something peculiar. Kalia had the team's full attention when she described hearing laughter just beyond the trees lining the pond. We were all silently looking, filming, and shining lights in the direction she was pointing when suddenly very vivid laughter came from behind us. We all heard it that time. Alan and I turned around and quickly loaded bullets into the chambers of our firearms. I handed my video camera off to Spencer. We heard nothing moving through the woods while we were standing there in silence, yet whatever Kalia heard laughing had somehow managed to completely surround us. The laughing was like nothing any of us had ever heard before in the woods of North Carolina. The laughing also sounded inhuman. We started whispering to each other about the laughter in an attempt to determine who or what was laughing exactly and more importantly why. As conversation softly continued the laughing persisted, only this time it was coming from the right of us, over and across the pond. Once again we could see nothing other than trees and mosquitoes that looked like they were straight out of the Jurassic era. At this stage we really needed to make a move. On three different occasions we heard laughter seemingly coming from three different directions. Alan decided to scout out the area where we heard the most recent laugh come from. I remained back with the team in case we were dealing with an animal that decided to get a little too friendly. My head investigator disappeared into the trees and the darkness as he went searching for the source of the laughter. At that moment, I received a radio transmission from Jeff. He had arrived at the plantation with the remainder of our gear and supplies. I instructed him to stand by. As soon as Alan returned, I was planning on pulling us out of the woods for the evening. Something just wasn't sitting right with me, and I could tell the team was anxious to get the hell out of there. Before we knew it, Alan surfaced from the thick brush with an intense look on his face. I'll never forget that look. He started speaking loudly as he approached us, instructing the team to move. He kept emphasizing over and over it was time for us to go. I asked him what happened, and he described witnessing a pair of self-illuminating eyes peering at him through some brush. He was in total blackout as to not give away his location, yet the eyes he saw appeared to be glowing. Alan described the eyes as being about two and a half feet off the ground. We were all convinced he saw some sort of animal. Regardless, the experience spooked and armed Alan enough to order the team out of the woods as soon as possible. The entire team started slowly backing out from the pond area when the laughter was heard once more. I instructed the team to start moving faster. We continued away from the pond and through the woods in a straight line. Like before, Alan took point and I covered the rear. The entire team was double-stepping. There was a lot of nervousness and stress in every one of us. A crunching sound to the left caught my attention. The sound was similar to when a person steps on a dry stick and snaps it. As I turned to look, the light on my head caught a glimpse of another set of eyes. This time, the eyes were moving right along with every step we took. Just as Alan described, the eyes were over two feet off the ground. I yelled up the line to get Alan's attention. He quickly fell back to meet up with me. I described to him what I had just witnessed. I told Alan that whatever this animal was, it was now stalking us. I also entertained the possibility that there was more than one. With that in mind, I pulled a device out of my vest called a heat seeker. This device is mostly used by hunters to track wildlife. The heat seeker does exactly what the name suggests it seeks heat. With a 900-foot range, panning the laser through the trees would detect anything that had a heartbeat. Nearly instantly the device was registering life forms in every direction. We were completely surrounded by animals. I looked at Alan and the only words that would come out of my mouth, well, shit. Alan turned around and quickly informed the team of the situation and without hesitation we continued on the path to exiting the woods. Meanwhile, I could still see those eyes watching our every move. Dozer started acting very strangely. He was whimpering and pulling on his leash extremely hard. Cleo was literally being dragged along behind him. It was taking all of her strength just to hang on to the leash. Dozer was not stupid. He knew we were surrounded and being stalked by something and he sensed it. Having a German Shepherd run the opposite direction was not a comforting feeling at all. I grabbed my radio and made contact with Jeff, who was awaiting our return in front of the plantation house. I asked Jeff to bring an ATV across the soybean fields and meet us at the edge of the woods. My plan was to have Jeff escort half the team across the fields and back to safety. I could see the glow stick I placed on the ground hours earlier just up ahead. That told me we were not very far from the fields. This was a good thing. In no time we reached the clearing and we were standing at the edge of the fields. I could hear the ATV in the distance, but we weren't out of hot water just yet. Alan and I kept close watch on the woods behind us while the rest of the team kept their eyes on the field awaiting Jeff and the transport. We could see multiple sets of glowing eyes about 50 yards into the woods. Those little bastards had stalked us all the way to the field. It turned out we were right. And there were more than one. This was a pack of something, and at that moment, not knowing exactly what wanted to eat us was more frightening than anything else. My heart was nearly jumping out of my chest as my finger was placed firmly on the trigger of the shotgun. I was preparing for the worst-case scenario, while I was questioning in my own head as to why I took this case to begin with. As Alan and I stood armed and ready for a full-blown animal attack, Jeff arrived with the transport to pick up the team. The three unarmed investigators were loaded onto the ATV. I strapped the shotgun on my back and took the camera back off of Spencer before they drove off. Alan kept his gun up and ready and aimed into the woods while our four investigators sped off to safety. Alan and I waited until they were clear of the fields before we started our trek back to the plantation house. Jeff called me on the radio once they arrived. I was certain this pack of animals would never follow Alan and me into the field. They would lose their cover and protection of the trees and become very vulnerable. From what I had witnessed so far, these animals were intelligent and made sure they had the upper hand. We had only traveled about a quarter of the way through the dead soybean field when I was rattled instantly by the sight of two glowing eyes in the field behind us. Alan started yelling at me to explain what I was so excited about. By the time I could say anything, the eyes were gone. The animal had ducked for cover underneath the leaves of the dead soybeans. I explained to Alan that one of the animals was now in the field coming towards us. At that moment three more sets of eyes appeared scattered throughout the field. This pack was crouching and using the cover of the soybeans to move through the field undetected. They would disappear in one location then reappear in another and each time draw closer and closer to us. With urgency in his voice, Alan requested permission to fire off a warning shot at these things in hopes of frightening them away. I wasted no time authoring that request. Allen fired in the direction of the animals. The sound of the gunfire was easily heard back at the plantation house. Just a few moments later, Jeff was on the radio to me again to check and see if we were all right. Considering the circumstances, I ignored his call. The field grew calm for a moment, and both Alan and I felt as if the threat was over. My ears were ringing from that single gunshot. Unfortunately, the gunfire had no real effect on our assailants. Once again, eyes started popping up everywhere. I thought my heart was going to beat right out of my chest. I felt like I was standing at the gates of hell. All of a sudden, the sound of an ATV at high speed was heard. Jeff appeared with intentions of hauling us back to the plantation house. Without hesitation, Alan and I screamed at Jeff to turn around. The last thing we wanted was this pack of hungry animals following us back to the house where the rest of the team was. With our lives at stake and the threat becoming higher yet, I ordered a full-blown open fire on those animals. Alan and I unloaded every bit of ammunition we had on us at the time. A thick cloud of gun smoke blanketed the field during the aftermath. Since we were out of ammunition, I strapped the shotgun on my back and Alan did the same with his rifle. I was really hoping we retaliated enough to prevent them from following us any further because at this point we were completely helpless. I pulled out a thermal imaging camera from my backpack to survey the fields to see if there were any signs of life remaining. Alan stood behind me looking at the screen of the camera as I panned slowly across the field. Something extraordinary caught our attention nearly simultaneously. We were looking at five figures standing in the field, all giving off body heat on the thermal camera. We both reacted accordingly by questioning what it was exactly we were looking at. I looked up from the thermal camera, but saw nothing. We both shined flashlights in that area. Nobody was there. Yet we would bring up the thermal camera, five figures stood there. Completely astounded at what we were witnessing and finally glad that something potentially supernatural was occurring, I suggested we return to the plantation house as soon as possible. Alan and I walked backwards the remainder of the trip all the way while watching the screen of the thermal imaging camera. The five figures remained standing still. I turned my head to take a quick glance at the direction we were walking and when I looked back at the camera, the figures were gone. We arrived back at base camp to find the team eagerly awaiting our return. I walked past all of them with a blank stare, completely ignoring their questions. I continued on to my truck where I had a cooler of water in the back. I stood there drinking and drenching myself in the water. Due to the exhaustion, I felt as if all but 2% of my life had been sucked right out of me. I collapsed to the ground from the heat and exhaustion and landed on my back. I stared at the night sky pondering the recent events and what we had documented. What species was the skeleton we found? What was laughing at us in the woods? What stalked us out of those woods? What exactly were those figures caught on the thermal camera? They stood and appeared to be human, yet the naked eye was unable to see them. Was any of this supernatural? Were those dog-like creatures hounds from hell? Were they shapeshifters, demons? Whatever they were, within seconds we went from fighting off a pack of some sort of creatures to filming humanoids on a thermal camera who apparently weren't there. After lying on the ground for about 20 minutes, I stood up and dusted myself off. I stared silently at my team, who were sitting about 50 feet away in a circle discussing everything that had happened thus far. As I was looking at them, I realized we all had placed our lives in danger and we still had two more days at this location. We survived the woods, but failed to locate the two remaining slave quarters. It was not a complete loss, however. The skeleton, the skeleton, the personal experiences, the thermal footage proved away heavy on my mind. Tomorrow we would visit the woods once more, only this time we would have a day's worth of sun to guide us. The sun would be a fortunate and unfortunate element, but certainly a necessary evil. In daylight, I was hoping to discover the remaining two slave quarters as well as hopefully locating a carcass or two from our intense evening of firing off dozens of bullets at would-be assailants. We still had the house to research as well, and that was set for Saturday evening after we spent the day on a second mission through the woods. I approached the team to find them all on their cell phones browsing the internet, desperately trying to find an image and species that matched the skeleton we found. I could tell the team was sitting uneasy over all the unanswered questions. Alan requested I take a look at an image he had pulled up on his phone. We walked away from the others and kneeled down by the skeleton. Alan placed his phone with the image next to the skull lying in the grass. Sure enough, the image he had pulled looked disturbingly similar to the skull on the ground. But the image he had pulled up was that of a hyena. Both of our jaws dropped at the thought of a pack of hyenas living on an abandoned plantation in North Carolina. I had heard stories in the past about American hyenas, but the majority of those stories was rooted in cryptozoology and never had any real proof to back them up. But it only looked similar. It was the closest thing we could find. Of course, if it was hyenas we were dealing with, that would have certainly explained the laughing we heard prior to being chased out of the woods but this was all entirely unlikely. People think I'm crazy enough as it is, chasing ghosts and monsters, and the last thing I needed to do was parade around claiming we were stalked by a pack of hyenas in North Carolina. I could not deny the photograph Alan had on his phone matched the skull, or at least was very similar. I needed more validation than that. I snapped a few pictures of the skull myself and from my cell phone emailed an anthropologist and research collaborator. I wanted to seek an outside professional opinion on what we possibly could be dealing with here. Alan and I found our way back to the team and I instructed everybody to turn in for the night. The following day was going to be very long and very exhausting. As the team started moving towards their tents, I stopped for a moment and looked over at the plantation house wondering what the hell we were going to find in that house. 7 in the morning came a little too soon for me and I had barely slept from being so sore and even trying to sleep in 100 degree weather was ridiculous. I was the first person to emerge from the tent that morning and the only thing on my mind was getting back out to the edge of those fields. I wanted to see if I could find any tracks, hair, or better yet, something dead to examine further. I just had to know what it was we had dealt with mainly because I wanted to be better prepared if that situation arose again. It wasn't long before Alan emerged from his tent with the same intent look of curiosity I was wearing that morning. We wasted no time gearing up with a few firearms and cameras. Our mission that morning was to return to the area we experienced the stalking creatures in hopes of finding answers to our questions. Alan and I started our long walk across the field. We reached the area from the night before and immediately started scanning the ground for the remains of an animal. 30 minutes of searching turned up nothing, and when I say nothing, I mean nothing. It was like we were never there, and the events of the previous night never took place. Alan pointed out that not one shell casing from all the ammunition we fired was anywhere to be found. So we started scouring the ground once more, looking for shell casings. Shotgun shells are quite large and very easy to spot on the ground, yet we found nothing. The entire previous night appeared as if it never happened. But we both stood there with just dumbfounded looks, because we knew it had happened. We began discussing possible theories as to how and why our ammunition had vanished. Our minds were racing with ideas. We were desperate to find a closure to this conundrum. Allen suggested that somebody or something must have cleaned up our mess to erase any and all evidence of what took place. But who would do that, and why? So the conspiracy theories started to fly. This was a very unique case, and maybe there were other people involved trying to keep the truth hidden. At that point, we just kind of had to laugh at what would be better known as an X-File. Since we were so close to the edge of the woods, we decided to travel forth in search of the remaining slave quarters. After a few hours, we found what appeared to be the foundation of an old building. This was most likely the missing slave quarters, but in its current state rendered it useless to us. We returned to base camp to report to the others our discoveries, or depending on how you look at it, our lack of discoveries. Allen explained to the crew that all of our ammunition was gone, and not a single body of an animal was located. Furthermore, no animal tracks and no tracks of our own were even evident. Even the ATV tire tracks did not exist. This newly found information placed every member of the crew and their brains on overload. I decided that until we were able to figure out what exactly was happening in the woods, it would be best for us to shift our focus to the plantation house. We spent the rest of the day preparing our gear and discussing the upcoming evening investigation into the old house. Later that evening I received a response from my anthropologist friend concerning the skeleton we had found. She said that without question it was definitely some form of canine, however she was having trouble narrowing down its exact breed. She did agree that the similarities between our discovery and a hyena were disturbing, interesting, and haunting. This did not ease my mind. There I stood closing in on night two of the investigation, and we still knew nothing of these creatures that chased us out of the woods. When you can't find an answer, you call that paranormal. I'm certainly not saying that we experienced hounds from hell or devil dogs, although those entities did come up in conversation among the team. But something was out there, and it was desperate to remove us from the forest by any means necessary. I knew what we experienced was real. The self-illuminating eyes, the five figures in the field, and the smoking guns were all documented. Believe me, I am right there with you thinking all of this sounds totally absurd. If I had not witnessed it with my own two eyes, I would have never believed it. What concerned me now was what we would find in the house itself. As nightfall approached the team, I prepared dinner on an open fire to fuel ourselves for the long night ahead. We were eating and chatting when Christina noticed something bizarre. She quickly gathered our attention and pointed out to the strange lights that was coming from inside the house. We all sat there staring at the house. Through the window, you could see what appeared to be people walking around with flashlights from room to room. We were the only people on the property, so it was very easy to rule out actual human beings with flashlights being what we saw emitting from the windows. This, of course, intrigued us and sparked even more excitement about the upcoming investigation. Then, without warning, both Christina and Alan saw a bright white light about the size of a basketball fly from one of the campers and into the fenced yard of the plantation house. Alan and I quickly jumped the fence and ran full force into the yard in an attempt to find the light. As we stood in the grass, we noticed a similar light coming from the middle of the fields. We wasted no time jumping the fence once more and running straight towards the glowing sphere. But it seemed no matter how hard we ran, we never grew closer to the light. Eventually, the light was gone. We arrived at the middle of the field where we believed the light to have vanished. I stopped Alan and quickly asked him to listen. I could hear what sounded like a heartbeat coming from the emptiness in front of us, and Alan heard it too. What exactly did we chase into that field? Did we witness an authentic spirit orb? Now elements of this case were adding up and really pointing towards the supernatural instead of a living, breathing creature. After returning to camp, I could tell everybody was itching to get into the house. At the same time, I could see hesitation in all of their eyes. Air was thick, and we all admitted to suddenly feeling emotionally different. There was this unexplainable depression taking all of us over. I have heard of this in the past. Strong spiritual energy can take a toll on a human's body, according to certain beliefs. This had me wondering how strong exactly this spirit, or spirits, was in order to affect all of us the way it did. It was almost as if the house was calling to us at that point. I was greatly concerned that if we were in fact dealing with some form of evil entity, that going into that house could be a foolish move. At least in the woods and in the fields we had room to move. In that house we would be confined and if something were going to harm us, it would do it there. With the latest excitement winding down and everybody collecting themselves, it was time to move on. It was time to see exactly what was waiting for us in that house. I've seen some shit, and I'm going to tell you about it. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Join Stephen on Facebook at facebook.com slash welcome to the initiative. That's facebook.com slash welcome to the initiative.